0: <clears throat> now for the talk. I want to talk today about the path of awakening um, and some fill in some pieces you might not be familiar with. So first of all, most of you know that the Buddha's preparation really followed uh, very um, austere ascetic practices, which brought him close to the brink of death. But then, Realizing that wasn't the path to awakening and having taken some nourishment, he found a quiet place under a tree and he settled his body down and he set aside all worry and longing for the world. And he established his intention not to be deterred. And he began practicing mindfulness of breathing. So... So he immediately noticed, as many of you will have noticed, mental obstructions. So it's not, uh, it's, this isn't sort of in the common teachings. It's in a sutra called the Deva Vitaka Sutta, or the Madhyama Agamas, in which he was thinking about what interferes with true freedom. So why are we not liberated right now? So he recognized that he had two types of thoughts. Thoughts that were harmful and thoughts that were wholesome. So the harmful thoughts were thoughts of um, sensual pleasure, thoughts of ill will and anger, or thoughts of harming. And the wholesome thoughts were thoughts that were marked by an absence of those things. So he he thought to himself, uh, whenever He experienced any thoughts of the first type he understood understood that such thought is harmful to himself and to others, and that it destroys wisdom and does not lead to Nirvana or freedom. On realizing this, he was able to abandon it. So this is sort of like us, I think this is kind of heartening. Um, So it's clear that before awakening, the Buddha himself had to deal with some unwholesome thoughts. And it can be helpful to remind ourselves that the Buddha to be had to face the same difficulties and disconcerting realization that unwholesomeness is in the mind, just as the rest of us do. So I find that kind of heartening. <clears throat> so he noticed that there are two modes of teaching the Dharma, which are shared by all Tathagatas, Arhants, and he said, rightly and fully awakened ones. What are the two? The first is that one should rightly understand what is detrimental. The second is that one should become thoroughly disgusted by and turn away from what is detrimental in our thinking. Not always easy, first of all, to identify what's detrimental because we're fond of some of these detrimental ways of thinking. So the Buddha talked about sensuality. Now certainly the Buddha was well acquainted with sensuality in his early life he had uh, great wealth and privilege, uh, as many of us have enjoyed. <clears throat> um, and he said, uh, sensual pleasure was rather easy to obtain. Uh, he says, when I had not gone forth to train in the path, I obtained the five chords of sensual pleasure. So uh, you know, uh, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and even uh, ideas and imagination, without difficulty. Uh, uh, Obtaining them easily and without difficulty, what is longed for and pleases the mind, what is likable and conjoined with sensual pleasure. Subsequently, I gave up the five cords of sensual pleasure, shaved off my hair and beard, put on the monastic robes, and left the household life out of faith and became homeless to train in the path. Seeing, as it really is, the arising and ceasing of the five chords of sensual pleasure, their gratification, their disadvantage, and the escape from them, I dwelt with a mind that is at peace within. The Buddha continues by describing how, being with a mind inwardly at peace in this way, he did not envy others who enjoy sensual pleasures. They just weren't interesting to him anymore. <clears throat> he says, formerly, when I had not yet attained full awakening, I was meditating alone in a quiet place and thought, "I should examine what direction does my own mind often incline towards." So this is investigation. Um, <clears throat> how's my own mind working? And he said, my own mind often pursued the five chords of sense pleasure of the past. It seldom pursues the five strands of self of sense pleasure of the present and it very seldom keeps revolving in those of the future. When I had contemplated that my mind often pursued the five sense pleasures of the past, I thoroughly aroused energy and effort to guard myself so that I would not again follow the five strands of sense pleasures of the past. Because of this diligent self-protection, I gradually drew closer to supreme and right awakening." So, Analeo says, this confirms that during his quest for awakening, the Buddha had to make an effort to guard his mind against the attraction of sense pleasures. Practicing like this, he said, staying in a remote and secluded place, cultivating diligently a mind free from negligence, a thought without sensual desire arose in me. I realized that a thought without sensual desire had arisen. I realized that this is not harmful to myself, not harmful to others, not harmful in both respects. That it leads to developing wisdom without difficulty and to attaining nirvana, on realizing that it is not harmful to myself, not harmful to others, and not harmful in both respects, and that it leads to developing wisdom without difficulty and to attaining nirvana, I in turn, swiftly developed it and made much of it. Similarly, he said again, practicing like this, staying in a remote and secluded place, cultivating diligently a mind free from negligence, a thought without ill will arose in me. I realized that a thought without ill will had arisen. I realized that this is not harmful to myself, not harmful to others, not harmful in both respects that it leads to developing wisdom without difficulty and to attaining nirvana. On realizing that it is not harmful to myself, not harmful to others and not harmful in both respects and that it leads in developing wisdom and to attaining nirvana, I in turn swiftly developed and made much of it. And again practicing like this, staying in a remote and secluded place, cultivating diligently a mind free from negligence, a thought without harming arose in me. I realized that a thought without harming had arisen. I realized that this is not harmful to myself, not harmful to others, and not harmful in both respects, that it leads to developing wisdom without difficulty and to attaining nirvana. On realizing that it is not harmful to myself, not harmful to others, and not harmful in both respects, And that it leads to developing wisdom without difficulty and attaining nirvana, I in turn swiftly developed it and made much of it. So in summary, he says, when a thought without sensual desire arose in me, I thought of it much. When a thought without ill will arose in me, I thought of it much. When a thought without harming arose in me, I thought of it much. Again, I thought the bodily composure and joy of one who thinks much will be lost and the mind will in turn be strained. Let me rather keep my mind in check within, constantly dwelling with inner tranquility and mental unification in the attainment of concentration so that my mind will not be strained. Subsequently, I in turn kept my mind in check within. Constantly dwelling with inner tranquility and mental unification in the attainment of concentration, and my mind was not strained. So, this practice is about building a healthy mind, um, a mind in accordance with what one intends. In accordance with what one thinks, the mind, in turn, delights in that, the Buddha said. If a monastic thinks many thoughts without sensual desire, and abandons thoughts with sensual desire, because of thinking many thoughts without sensual desire, the mind delights in that. If a monastic thinks many thoughts without ill will, and abandons thoughts with ill will, because of thinking many thoughts without ill will, the mind in turn delights in that. If a monastic thinks many thoughts without harming and abandons thoughts with harming because of thinking many thoughts without harming, the mind in turn delights in that. So Analio says, in essence, I become what I think. <clears throat> For this reason, This sets the stage for appreciating that even just conceptual reflection based on the Brahmaviharas, for example, will have an effect on our mind, which can be considerably strengthened by engaging in their meditative cultivation. Every moment we are with an attitude of metta, compassion, sympathetic joy or equanimity will leave its impact not only on others but also on our own mental household. The alternative is this suggests that if our mind is allowed to tend toward thoughts of sensual desire, anger or violence, those thoughts will become more and more attractive, more and more delightful to us. And this explains a great deal of what's happening in our country right now. People become consumed with unwholesome thoughts. They begin to inhabit that thought world and its destructive effects, both on their own minds and in the world created by their thoughts, words, and actions. So how does this relate to Zen since this is the early discourses of the Buddha that we're talking about? The Buddha taught that we must guard our own minds from unwholesome thinking and cultivate wholesome thinking. From this perspective his teachings may seem to contradict the Zen approach of allowing everything arising in the mind and the body simply to move through without interference or manipulation. But I don't really believe there is a contradiction. In the Buddha's teaching to avoid straining and to abandon unwholesome thoughts there's a sense of letting go of the struggle and grasping attached to our thinking. We do need the discernment to recognize when our thoughts are unwholesome and leading us into danger. A practice that simply allows those thoughts Thoughts of sensual desires, of anger, of harm towards self or others, to proliferate, is not a healthy practice. I do think there's a middle way between suppression of thoughts and indulgence of or clinging to them. It's the way of recognizing them for what they are, discerning whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, and responding with wisdom and compassion to each one. Our discernment is the key. And we keep attending and learning how to be skillful in managing our own bodies, minds and hearts wisely. Zen isn't about doing nothing any more than you can get physically fit doing nothing. It's about bringing your full awareness to this present moment right here so that you can meet it skillfully and with a mind in alignment with your aspiration, not distracted or sidelined by your conditioning. It is to be fully awake. As Uman said, enlightenment is an appropriate response. Our mind is our home. We need to take good care of it, keeping it in good shape, spacious, filled with fresh air, open and inviting, so that we can use it creatively and wisely. The state of the world requires an alert, awake, flexible and available mind. There are so many opportunities to practice watching the thoughts arising in response to our world, our natural world, our personal world, the world of others and the world beyond. Are they wholesome? Are they harmful to myself or others or both? Do they lead to wisdom and liberation? The good news is that even if not, even if sometimes we're overtaken by sense desires, anger, even violence, we can practice abandoning them just letting go. This is our training. It's like when a puppy finds a dead toad in the street and you say, drop it. You know that it could even be poisonous to that puppy. It's hard and we start to recognize the thoughts that are sticky, that velcro into our conditioning and don't want to let go. That's okay. We just keep practicing. Sometimes an interruption is helpful. Take a walk. Clean something right a little bit and meanwhile there are moments clearings in the thicket of our views and preferences where we feel genuinely free in our training it is just as important to recognize these moments just as the buddha did and to enjoy them and delight in them this is one way we can absolutely assist each other noticing our present moment experience with delight So without strain we bend toward the light like a tree or a flower and we grow in that direction and become strengthened by it. It's the light of what Hongzhi called silent illumination. So Peter Hershock talked about this as relinquishing all horizons for readiness, responsibility and relevance. What we're ready for, what we take responsibility for and what we find relevant. So... So liberation is really liberation from conditioning, from uh, the conditioning that constrains us or limits us in certain ways and makes us inflexible or closed down or contracted. Uh, There are all these different ways that this has been described I like the description of the paramitas. I like the description that freedom from conditioning is expressed in these six ways that we can also train in or we can also cultivate. Dana, generosity, which is this freedom from grasping and self-making, the heart of compassion, and a kind of vastness uh, that doesn't come from a sense of lack but comes from a sense of sufficiency enough. And sila, ethical conduct, which is our natural morality, it's not governed by rules or formulas. It is that upright integrity that is in alignment with our vows and our aspiration. Or kshanti, patience, um, which is sometimes, um, I think, uh, frees us from the demands and requirements that we have for ourselves or for others. This patience, this uh, uh, another way to think of it is as forbearance, uh, which is the capacity to endure hardship with goodwill. Even the tiny, tiny hardship of putting on a mask, you know, even the tiny, tiny hardship of social distancing, to be able to to forbear things with goodwill—not just enduring, but having goodwill about it—and that's hopeful and inspiring for others. Or virya, which is energy and vigor, which is liberating activity. And the, uh, the energy is released from relinquishing or um, abandoning our conditioned thinking. So that frees up a tremendous amount of energy that's been bound up in that uh, conditioning. So that then we turn to dhyana, which is settling down in our true home, our meditation practice, and this willingness to stop to be still, to be silent. And from these uh, prajna paramita these other paramitas, grows wisdom, which is a byproduct of this kind of activity. So it leads to an utterly free mind and heart and body. For, from this point of view, it's intimately related to last week's talk on cause and effect. So, in essence, the Buddha's path to awakening was a deep, deep inquiry that he made into uh, cause and effect. So, we of course are curious, how did the Buddha become enlightened? That's the cause and effect relationship we're interested in. And how can I become enlightened? And why is cause and effect at the heart of the Buddha's enlightenment? Why was that the, the center of what he understood? Well, first of all, He was interested in the origins of suffering and the end of suffering, which is a cause and effect inquiry, right? What is it that's causing suffering and what is it that ends suffering? So once his mind was still and ready, prepared in the ways that he describes, he turned it as an instrument would be turned towards the first higher knowledge, the knowledge of past lives. Why was this the first knowledge? Well, if we want to know how does suffering originate, we have to look backwards, right? And the Buddha decided, I'll start with myself, you know, personally. Where did my own suffering begin? And this inevitably, because of the, I think, the culture, which had this belief in... uh, Um, Reincarnation and the idea of karma that's perpetuated lifetime after lifetime, um, that was part of uh, of the Indian culture at the time and the Indian teachings at the time. So necessarily, that means looking back. How far back do we go? That's a really good question, you know. When I started looking at, you know, where is karma produced? And we always say, you know, in our morning chant, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Inevitably, it didn't just start with you. Think about your parents, you think about your grandparents, you think about the generations before them. Taking it all the way back, it seemed to me that the origins of karma are the origins of life itself. So, the Buddha investigated these previous lives. And then the second Higher knowledge was when he said, well, what about everybody else? What about other people? How do they suffer? And the higher knowledge that he uh, attained in that was recognizing that people fare forward according to their karma, the consequences of their every thought, word and deed. So this is pretty clear. I mean, if you live long enough, you look around and you see, oh yeah, that really is true. It's not that we can create our own circumstances. What we create is our response to the circumstances we find ourselves in. And that comes out of our thoughts, our our speech, and our actions. So, corollary to this was his realization of dependent arising, uh, which is the heart of his awakening. Um, This understanding of how things are dependent on, on causes that are not linear causes. So, there's a whole complex of things. And you can think about this in terms of your own life. The things that have happened to you or the things that you've done, they always happen within a context in which there are multiple causes that are at play. Um, Some physical, some psychological, some social, some environmental, um, all these uh, contributing factors uh, create that. So, um, the third higher knowledge, um, this is from uh, the meditator's life of the Buddha, by the way, on was letting go of all and everything in order to be liberated. So the Buddha realized that he had to go beyond both consciousness and name and form in order to achieve the cessation of ignorance that fuels their continuous interplay from one life to the next. In other words, he had to find a way of going beyond the whole gamut of experience in order to step out of the reciprocal conditioning relationship between consciousness and name and form. So this is kind of advanced practice. And and I wouldn't be alarmed if this escapes you in the moment. um, But I'm just filling in some of the gaps in the background of our practice path. That foundation underlies all of the Zen teaching about letting go right about um, dropping everything so it cuts right to the chase in a way like um, just cut through all the delusions cut through all the contractions cut through all the conditioning just drop it and much of the uh, sort of iconoclastic teaching of the zen masters and koans are really designed to have that effect exactly so um so this sense of attending to what direction our thoughts are heading, are they heading in a wholesome direction, are they heading in an unwholesome direction, and being wise stewards of our own mind is central to Buddhist teachings, and the way that that is practiced differs from school to school, the way that it's taught or the way that, it's, um, uh, that, that practices have developed in different schools of Buddhism. Uh, reflect those differences. But in any event that quality of attending to what's arising in your mind and the ways in which we grasp onto um, thoughts or feelings or even physical sensations uh, and the strain that's involved in that uh, is something we attend to something we pay attention to. So hopefully that makes sense to you. I have a little bit of an activity um, for exploring this, and it involves some writing. So, if you need to get some writing materials—a pen, or a pencil, or a pen, or something—please um, do. And it's just going to be three little, three little probes. I I think of these as these probes as just like, it's just like dropping a pebble into a pond and seeing what ripples out from that, right? So, whatever. Don't, you know, don't try to make anything coherent out of it. Just whatever ripples out when you hear these probes. And I'm going to give them to you one at a time. So you don't need to worry. You'll have about five minutes for each one. So, um, And you probably will need maybe a minute or so just to get mindful to, uh, to see what, uh, what comes up when you hear these questions. Um, The first one is, what are you not ready for? What are you not ready for? What are you not ready for? Second question, what are you not responsible for? What are you not responsible for? have wow, five minutes. So what are you not responsible for? You think about it for a little bit. Okay. Last question. What is not relevant for you? What is not relevant for you? You think this doesn't apply to me or this doesn't pertain to me or this is of no interest to me. What is not relevant for you? And have about 15 minutes in breakout rooms and probably in uh let's see six rooms i think so i think sandra you're hosting well the way i live my life i mean it, it's the same as everything else i mean we... yeah that's what you're responsible for right. yeah so something that becomes relevant you might develop a sense of responsibility around um but it does the the things the things that are relevant to you are not necessarily things you're responsible for. Yeah. Yeah, it's just your sphere of interest or attention. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So it might be relevant to you that someone is unhappy, for example, without you feeling responsible for remediating that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll do service.